to Mystical Millennial, a podcast about the musings of a self-proclaimed glamour witch and her friends. Grab a drink and join me, V, for a magical chat. It's episode two! I was going to have a guest for this episode, but the logistics prevented it. And it's not because of the guest. It's because prior to this publishing, I have been out of town because it's my birthday. And it's a big one, which is I am 30. My little millennial ass has turned 30 years old. And oh, my fucking God, I'm actually an adult. I guess this is the age at which you're an adult and you start to have credibility. Maybe people will stop telling me I'm such a baby. But it's honestly all bullshit because I felt like I've been living in my 30s for a while. I'm a responsible Virgo. I need to have my ducks in a row. And it's nice because things have settled in. I learned about something called second puberty, which is where your hips spread and your belly starts to jiggle. And body positivity is really important, but that's a whole nother episode. My point for now is that my 20s were a time of insecurity and growing and settling and now I'm 30 and it feels good to enter a new decade and this podcast is happening and my tarot business is happening and my awesome marriage is happening and speaking of my husband, allow me to introduce Potions Master and my own personal Knight of Cups, my husband Patrick. Hey Victoria, (laughs) good to have you on the show. You're, this is my show. <laughs> you made me a birthday cocktail. I did. I did. So I want to apologize to all the fans in advance because I wanted to teach people really simple cocktails in the beginning. That's not what this is, huh? It's not. It's a little bit more complex. And I promise I'm going to get back into the simple stuff next week. But Victoria wanted me to make a special cocktail for her birthday. Yeah. So found a cocktail based around her favorite dessert, German chocolate cake. It's my favorite cake. It's your favorite cake. Yes. My mom made a delicious German chocolate cake. She makes a good one. She makes it gluten-free too, which is really nice. But you know what's even better? Is that German chocolate cake martinis are always gluten-free. Boom. Bada buoy. Right? Unless there's gluten in the chocolate syrup. I don't know. We'll find out. We don't know. (laughs) (laughs) You you can't just like say something's (laughs) gluten-free. That's why I'm not a food scientist. All right. So I did want to just let everybody know I did get this recipe from a website called The Cookie Rookie. They have a great recipe on their website that we tested out together. And I think Victoria is going to post that on the Instagram. Yes. So people can see that for themselves. Uh, but, you know, what I thought I would do is kind of oh, in a way to get back to basics is I want to talk to everybody about dessert cocktails in general Mm. because i don't think they get the love and the respect that they really need i mean this one is getting a lot of my love and respect (laughs) this is fantastic it's just a pain in the butt to make wait (laughs) but before you yeah i know it took like 20 minutes and like two trips to the store yeah exactly explain the recipe first sure thing so this is going to compose of some chocolate milk And the Cookie Rookie uses chocolate almond milk, which I think would have been great, but we just used regular chocolate milk. Uh, You've got chocolate milk, coconut vodka, or coconut rum. We used coconut rum for this Mm -hmm. one. And Frangelico, which is a hazelnut liqueur. Uh, It's also got a garnish on the rim of the martini glass. 
basically take the martini glass, you dip it in some chocolate syrup, then you rub it on crushed walnuts and crushed coconut, which was actually really awesome. That like, was, I was super, just, I was just munching so on the rim. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's the, totally worth it. It looks yeah. gorgeous. It does look really pretty. Yeah. And, and it's, it's delicious. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it tastes like a piece of German chocolate it's cake. It's chocolate cake in a glass. Right. Yeah. And I think that's why I really wanted to talk a little bit more about you know, what are dessert cocktails and why are they out there and, and why do they deserve more of our attention? So I think a dessert cocktail is really going to be any sort of a cocktail that crosses the line of being something casual into something a little bit more decadent. Yeah. It's oftentimes I mean, really heavy. They are. They can be they can be real heavy. A lot of them have a little bit more sugar, a little bit more cream or sweetness to them. And a lot of times in the dessert cocktails I've come across, they tend to also be a little bit lower in alcohol content. And I think that's because we're using liquors and liqueurs that are, uh, they tend to be lower in alcohol content in and of themselves, just as a reference point. You know, the coconut rum that we used was only a 35% alcohol, as opposed to rum, which is usually 40. And that 35% alcohol content, that was actually pretty high. Uh, you can get, I think that like the coconut cruzan rum, that flavored cruzan coconut rum, I think that sets at about 20 to 25% alcohol. So mm. a lot of times flavored, flavored components of a dessert cocktail tend to be lower in alcohol content. What's in this one? This one had coconut rum. We used monkey rum. Uh, a little bit pricier when it comes to a flavored liquor, but I actually would recommend that if you are going to do this, splurge on the more expensive flavored liquors. I think that the cheaper you go with the flavored liquors, the worse the flavor is going to be. Um, there so, is a, so none of that plastic no, bottle. No, <laughs> stay away from that. There's a fine line between... A company that takes something like vodka or rum and just adds flavored syrup to it. And a company that tries to really infuse flavors into the liquor. Mm. Like this rum that we tasted, it must have been aged it's in so steel. Smooth. It was so smooth. We actually made other drinks with it afterwards. But it had, it's, it's obviously aged in a steel barrel because it was a clear white rum. But they aged it with toasted coconut flakes. Mm. So it wasn't a syrup added in at the end. It makes all the difference in the world. Um, so I think that, you know, there's actually a lot of very common dessert cocktails that we drink day to day that we just don't think about as being dessert cocktails. You know, I really would consider something like a mimosa to be a dessert cocktail. Huh. Because really, if you think about it, you've got the sweetness, the bubbliness of champagne, bringing kind of some decadence to the table, mm. along with an orange juice, which is really drowning out a lot of that underlying alcohol. You know, you think about something like something like that compared to um, like a Manhattan, you know, and oh, yeah. how different those two are. Yeah, like you're tasting more of the alcohol or like the martini right. we had last week. Or exactly. Last episode. I think I think that a, a good kind of uh, aperitif cocktail or a during, minor, a during dinner cocktail is going to accentuate the underlying liquors. 
which a dessert cocktail is usually trying to emulate a food flavor, which kind of leads into, the, I think, the second big component of dessert cocktails. A lot of times people take a pre-existing food item and try and simulate that flavor like German through chocolate a dessert cake. cocktail. Exactly. <laughs> and when I was looking up recipes for this, I came across tiramisu dessert cocktails and there's actually like a birthday cake martini cocktail where you actually take the batter from a birthday cake box mix it with sugar and water Ew. and make a syrup with it i mean it tastes like a birthday cake martini i've had a birthday cake shot before and it really tastes like it and it's it's weird it's Ugh. weird, but a lot of times dessert cocktails, they... I'm they... glad you didn't make that. <laughs> <laughs> I know that you're not, you're not a huge fan of birthday cake anyways. I mean... Um, <laughs> so, you know, dessert cocktails, they, they have this really unique component to them that I think a lot makes a lot of people shy away from them. You know, when we think about going out to drink with our friends, a lot of times we'll tend to settle... Or on a date, sorry. Um, a lot of times we tend to settle into something very specific mm. we're feeling red wine we're feeling beer or maybe we're feeling a certain kind of cocktail and then at some point you finish your meal and all of a sudden the question of the dessert cocktail comes up and a lot of people say why would i switch from drinking red wine to having a german chocolate cake martini hell and then you would just order a piece of cake yeah why why do that and i think that this is kind of where in our, in our culture, there's a few stigmas that I would like to try and break down when it comes to this. You're so serious about this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm not the biggest fan of dessert, dessert cocktails, honestly. My, my father taught me a lot about drinking. And he was never a huge cocktail guy. That's a loaded statement. <laughs> well, he did. And, and I think that my father taught me so much, but I feel like dessert cocktails were something that he never touched. Mm. He never interacted with. And they, I always wondered why. They require a lot of ingredients. They do. And, and and I think when we go to a restaurant, what do we want? We want something that's maybe a little bit more complicated. Something that you look at and you're like, I don't want to make that at home. That's a pain in the ass. You know, but yet here we are at home. We're making martinis. And then we're going to a bar and asking for a martini. Mm. It's, I mean, it's, come on, it's the same thing. You mm. know, you wouldn't go to your, you wouldn't go to a chef at a restaurant and ask him to make you a box of craft dinner. Right. You would go to if you go to a nice place, you want something a little more crafted and dessert cocktails fall into that category. Mm. And um, I, I started exploring them with you. We've kind of gotten them a little bit more. And I want to challenge a couple stigmas around it. The first is that I don't think you need to stop drinking what you're drinking to have a dessert cocktail. Oh, so like. But what like food? Think of it like food. Oh. If, a, if, if you, it's the end of the meal. You get a menu, you see dessert cocktails on it. Let's say it's a let's say it's something real common. It's a chocolate martini. Yeah. Those are quite common. Or espresso martini. Or an espresso Ooh. martini, sure. You don't have to say to yourself, Oh, I've been, I've been drinking red wine, so I can't I can't switch to a martini now. Yes, you absolutely can. And you don't have to stop drinking red wine. You order a chocolate martini to share with your date and you keep it in the center of the table, just Ooh. like you would a piece of cake. Oh, that's true. That's cute. It's romantic. It's nice. And think about how the flavors of something like a chocolate martini are going to mix with something like a glass of red wine. There's no need to separate those flavors out. They complement each other quite well. The thing about dessert cocktails at the end of the day, there's two components that most people don't realize. 
The first is some, a lot of times they tend to be a little bit lower in calories than the actual underlying meal that it's replacing. Oh, interesting. I mean, think about what we're drinking right now. I made this German chocolate cake. Did a little research on my fitness pal. What? How many calories are in a piece of German chocolate cake? How many do you think, Victoria? Like 500. Yeah, kind of. It seems to hover around between 350 to 550. How many calories do you think are in this drink? Like 200. Yeah, pretty much. It's. I mean, it's got 400 calories between both of the drinks I made for us. Well, it's good, too, because sometimes you don't want, like, a full dessert after a meal. Like, that's why a lot of people yeah. share dessert. But this is, like, even just a little bit of that sweetness. It's Exactly. It's not heavy on your stomach. Mm. It's not like, oh, my God. How many times do we say, oh, my gosh, I'm so full. Yes, I'll have another glass of wine. It's like there's, <laughs> there's always room for a, for a liquor. Yeah, that's true. Now, look. This is a general rule of thumb here that we're talking about. If you order a Guinness milkshake, okay, that's not going to be a substitute for a chocolate milkshake. Oh my God. What? <laughs> that's a thing? Have, oh yeah. They take Guinness Next glasses, <laughs> Guinness glasses three, three or four scoops of vanilla ice cream, top it off with Guinness. You got yourself a Guinness, a little Guinness milkshake. A Guinness float? Oh my God. Yeah, we got to like try it. Oh, yeah. what? So, I mean, you think about how creative you can get with the dessert cocktails. And, and yeah, they're not supposed to. You, you don't go to a bar thinking, I can't wait to have chocolate martinis all night long. That sounds disgusting. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I never <laughs> thought just, of it that way. You just have the one. You have it with your wine or you have it with your beer. And then you're done. Ah. And you put it away. That's I love that. Right. It's not high in alcohol. It's not. You, you don't have to deal with like, well, I'm switching from wine to, to vodka or whatever. No, forget all of that. It's just one little thing. Mm. And then that's it. Huh? I think this is the kind of thing that we're really underappreciated. I, I just really would like to see them kind of have a little bit more prominence mm. than they have right mm-hmm. now. And, you know, think, too, about how much you know, the, we had to kind of buy a couple of specialty liquors for True. this cocktail we made. But think about when you go to a bar. They have all that stuff. That's true. They've got all the flavored stuff. They've got you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to go to the store and buy 20 different kinds of flavored vodkas yeah. just to make sure that you can make a random craving for an apple pie martini. Right? You can just order one at the bar because they've got it ready to go and they've got it for you. Nice. So I love it. So next time if you brave a restaurant right now, concerning considering COVID. <laughs> yeah. My gosh. And I think you can think about you can think about how your current drinks complement what you're going to order just like you would with a dessert. Yeah. Red wine's gonna work well with a chocolate martini. Sure. You could order you can order like a nice if they have like a nice bellini or like a fruity dessert cocktail to have at the end, that complements well with a white wine or mm. a champagne that you and your you and your loved one can share over something like that. What about a beer? Beer, same way. I mean, you know, your darker beers are going to complement your darker flavors. Mm. You know, if you're drinking a stout, you order something chocolatey. If you're drinking something light, you order something fruity. It it complements and ends the evening well. And it's so romantic. You know, I mean, you think about sharing a piece of cake with the person you love. Think about sharing a piece of chocolate cake martini. I do want to say, though, I really do think the word martini gets quite bastardized in this field of cocktail. <laughs> I mean, the drink we had, it's considered a, mar- a quote unquote martini. It doesn't have vodka or gin in it. It's got rum and hazelnut liqueur. So you're going to see the word martini 
pretty much all the time mm -hmm. when you're ordering dessert cocktails. Usually all that means is that it's going to be served in a martini glass, but the actual underlying liquors could vary wildly. <laughs> so they don't, well, this had rum in it. It's had rum in it, right. So if you do see something that says martini on the end of it, you might want to ask the bartender or look a little bit deeper into the actual ingredient list because it's probably not really going to be a martini. <laughs> oh, man. Cool. Well, these are delicious. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Um, and like I said, next week, get back a little bit more into the basics. Uh, what do you... Uh... It's a secret. Oh, it's a secret. All right. Well, I'll come up with something on the side. Then. <laughs> I'll, t I'll tell you later. <laughs> Thanks that for coming good. on the show. Absolutely. For, can, I'm glad I, I mean, I video. finished, I finished mine. Can I have, I'm going to, I'm just going to take you yours. You cannot. Yes. I am drinking mine slowly. Oh. And I enjoy it. Can I have another one? You can have a sip of mine. Can I'll I make, I'll make another one. Yes. <laughs> okay. So I wasn't sure about what I wanted to talk about for this episode, and I'm not enough of a narcissist to just talk about myself and my favorite things, like my favorite color. It's purple. <laughs> what I do want to talk about are my favorite tarot cards. In the last episode, I told you all my origin story and about the Shadowscapes deck, which was a birthday present to myself, and how I cut my teeth on the tarot. I'm mostly going to be referring to that deck and these cards I'm going to talk about. Two that I really love have everything to do with my personal astrology. They are the Page of Pentacles and the Eight of Pentacles. And let me preface this by going very quickly over my personal astrological chart. Virgo Sun, Taurus Moon, Capricorn Rising, and five other planets that are either in Virgo or Capricorn. So yeah, I'm very earthy. And the Page of Pentacles is the Earth Court card of the Earth Suit, let me back up for a moment for those of you with little knowledge of tarot and astrology. And yes, they are super closely linked. And yes, I will be doing an episode diving more into this connection, probably a series of episodes because there's a lot to know. But astrology 101, 12 signs, four elements, earth, fire, air, water, just like Avatar. Virgo, Taurus, and Capricorn are the three earth signs. I got them all, honey. I'm motherfucking tough but she's more badass than me. She's meaner than me. <laughs> and then there's the tarot. Other than the major arcana, which are the named cards like the devil and the hermit and the lovers, there are four suits, which also correspond to the four elements. Swords are air, wands are fire, cups are water, pentacles are earth, and the suits have numbers one through 10, then the court cards. So there's 14 cards in each suit plus the 22 major arcana. So 78 total cards. But the court cards also have their own elements. Pages are earth. Knights are fire. Queens are water. Kings are air. With me so far? <laughs> Don't worry if you forget. I couldn't keep wands and swords straight for like six months when I first got going. <laughs> straight because... They're straight. Uh, moving on. <laughs> so, page of pentacles, earth of earth. Grounded as fuck. I immediately connected with this card mostly because of the description in the Shadowscapes guidebook. 
This description talks about everything lovely about an earth sign. The element of earth is, a lot of the time, about being connected to the physical environment around you. It's about your physical space and well-being. It's also about the ambition of a Capricorn, the steadfastness of a Taurus, and the diligence of a Virgo. And the artwork, as I've mentioned before and will always mention, is gorgeous in the Shadowscapes deck. The Page of Pentacles is seated atop of a dragon she's conquered. I would learn later that I have dragon guides. And yeah, I'll talk about dragons too. <laughs> but she's also holding her own light source. She's calm, even though she just put a dragon to sleep that's easily three times her size. That calm is what really attracted me to the Page of Pentacles. I'm not a calm person like at all that's the flip side of earth is that it's rooted down hard virgos in particular don't like change and we're all aware of the phrase stubborn as a bull which is the symbol of taurus spontaneousness is not my friend so calm is not usually my thing this page though is calm and seeing it as something I carry within myself, even if it's way, way down and takes a lot of particular environmental factors, there's that physical environment again, to get me chill, it's really encouraging. It's incredibly empowering. There's also an owl in here representing wisdom, um, which I'll get to the symbol uh, symbology of the owl is in another favorite tarot card of mine. But yeah, just something about this page. I pulled it in a reading for myself, which included a lot of other strong female figures. And it just really spoke to me in terms of my ego. And ego is this kind of nasty word because you think of the phrase ego... Uh, you think of the word egomaniacal, um, the Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2's villain is named Ego, like you're egotistical, but that's what your sun sign is, is your ego. It's the self. And, you know, we're always taught that we want to look out for other people because we're constantly looking out for number one, but really that's what self-care is about. That's what taking time off for yourself is about to recharge. You do really have to take care of yourself. You have to be on the lookout for your ego. Not in the sense that you need to step on everybody else, which, you know, arguably a Capricorn might do. <laughs> There's that ambition and that climbing goat. But the ego in terms of you make your own success. You are the one carrying your own light, just like this page. You're the one making things happen. And you have the capability to do that. It's just a really beautiful message and a gorgeous card. And it's actually the cover of the guidebook in the Shadowscapes deck. So that's kind of cool too. There's kind of double significance there. And my other favorite card that's tied to my personal astrology is the Eight of Pentacles. This astrology is Sun in Virgo, and also my birthday is the 8th of September. So, Eight of Pentacles, Eight of Earth, Eight of Moi. <laughs> By the way, I'm not pulling the astrological associations out of my well of amazing tarot knowledge. I know the astrological associations of the tarot cards thanks to Liz Dean's Ultimate Guide to Tarot. 
which uh, was a birthday gift from Patrick, the same year I got the Shadowscapes deck. So there was a lot of really great knowledge happening at the same time. I know I recommended this book last episode. It probably won't be the last time I recommend Liz Dean's Ultimate Guide to Tarot, but you should really get it if you're wanting to learn about tarot. But back to the Eight of Pentacles. It's typically shown as a card of hard work and industry. In the original Rider-Waite-Smith deck, it's a blacksmith crafting pentacles, um, these golden discs with the little five-pointed star. Some are finished and hanging, some are half-finished on the floor, and one he's currently working on. In the Shadowscapes deck, though, it's one of the most stunning cards because it's a sparkly spider web with a beautiful jewel green background. I was drawn to this card before I knew it was a Sun and Virgo card because it just so beautiful. In fact, it caught my mom's eye when I was showing her the deck and I knew I didn't have to worry about my family seeing me in a bad light for my new passion because my mom's comment on the card, she just thought it was gorgeous and Tarot is often depicted as something kind of scary, which, yeah, it absolutely can be because it deals with life and life can be scary. But my mom look, stopping while I was shuffling through the deck be like, wow, that card is super gorgeous. And it's also the reason I use the Shadowscapes deck to read for other people who haven't gotten a tarot reading before because it's beautiful and helpful. And like I said, it can be really scary because the most famous cards in the tarot are death and the devil, which they're scary. They have positive sides too, but you know, mostly kind of scary. But back to the astrology, <laughs> your astrological sun is what people are talking about when they ask what your sign is or you're reading your horoscope. And it's much more complicated than that because there are other planets. There's your rising sign. There's houses. It's a verifiable rabbit hole. <laughs> But again, different episode. Sun in Virgo is typically the last week or so of August and most of September. Virgo is a hard but anxious worker because we're perfectionists. We pay attention to detail. If a Virgo lets a detail slip, it's because they're either worked way too hard or they did it on purpose. Uh, kind of like a... <laughs> like in a spiteful way. <laughs> I'm laughing because I know from personal experience that you have to know the state of a Virgo to tell. Believe me, it is going to show. But both the spider and the blacksmith in the RWS deck pay great attention to detail to make these beautiful things. The spider arguably has a harder job because all eight of the pentacles in the web have to connect and remain balanced so the web doesn't break. Oh my gosh, I totally almost forgot to mention the other really beautiful connection to this card for me personally. So I crochet and knit. My mother-in-law, Joanne, who gifted me the tarot, also taught me how to knit. She's just a wealth of amazingness and I love you, Joanne. Um, but the spider, Eight of Pentacles, made me immediately think of the weaver, which that's all crocheting and knitting is, is just taking a big old scanty yarn and just weaving it into complicated patterns to make something completely new. And at the time I was learning the tarot, I was still trying to figure out how to make my yarn art into a small business, which ultimately didn't get off the ground in the way that I imagined it. 
Um, but this was unmistakably an encouragement to me to receive this card that was clearly about me since my son is in Virgo and I'm a weaver like the spider. She's got her web, I've got my yarn, and ultimately the goal is to take the string and make it into something amazing. So it's an encouragement to my creativity because Virgos also love to create. It's that paying attention to detail and making those details so fine and really using your unique skills to do it. But I'm sure you're all dying to know what my favorite major arcana card is. So the major arcana, once again, are those 22 named cards, the devil, death, the tower, the lovers, the world. And of course they all have assigned astrology, but my personal favorite doesn't have anything to do with my personal astrology. My uh, sun sign Virgo, of course, uh, is represented by the hermit. And there have been some really interesting connections with the Hermit card and other decks, but overall the Hermit card, you know, it's not really my thing. It's not my favorite card. My favorite card is the High Priestess. Now, I want to make a comment really quickly about the tarot having been relatively not sexist in terms of men and women depicted in positions of power. It's more about masculine and feminine energies, and I'm not saying that's not problematic at times, which we'll get into in a whole other episode, but for example, there's an emperor and an empress, a high priestess and a high priest, but he's typically called the Hierophant. But the high priestess comes before the Hierophant in the Major Arcana, so whatever, we'll call it a win for feminism. But that's not why she's my favorite. HP is my favorite because she is the embodiment of intuition. I won't talk about the Shadowscapes version because it doesn't honestly stand out in particular. I will say that the original art by Pixie and the RWS is my favorite depiction of the High Priestess. Two other notable amazing depictions are from the Tarot of Jane Austen, where it's Jane Austen herself and the rest of the deck are the characters from her novels. And the other one is the Mona Lisa in the Da Vinci Enigma Tarot. The High Priestess is basically goals for me as a tarot reader and intuitive person. I'm not really psychic. I don't really have powers of mediumship. It's not really anything like that. Um, I, my gifts really are reading and interpreting the tarot cards, but there's a lot of intuition that goes into that. And again, the High Priestess is the embodiment of intuition. And there's a ton of symbolism in the original artwork, like the black and white pillars representing the Temple of Solomon, the triple goddess crown depicting the divine feminine, and the owl. There's that owl again. I told you she would come back. <laughs> the owl in the High Priestess card has a key showing unlocking your personal wisdom. And there's so many more things I could talk about, but I don't really want to dive into the High Priestess today because it's probably a future episode. <laughs> it's one of the things I really adore about tarot. Um, and people have asked me the difference between tarot and oracle cards. And the thing about tarot is you have your set 78 cards and the symbolism is sometimes the same and it's sometimes different depending upon the artist. And oracle cards can just be whatever. So I think it's just interesting to see how the symbolism picks up in the different tarot decks. But yeah, that's that's why I love the tarot so much is you 
can kind of tap into the traditional cards and how they're reimagined by the artists. But that's one of the things I really love about the symbolism and having a lot of different symbolism, especially in this High Priestess card. Your eye will catch different things depending upon the reading. Maybe one time I'll focus on the owl, so I need to hone my wisdom. And maybe another time I'll focus on the triple goddess, so it's more about my divine femininity. And that's the thing, though. It always matters. Whatever your eye is drawn to, whatever symbols happen to come to the forefront of your mind, that's really what intuition is. And it always matters. It always matters. It should not ever be dismissed. Your heart or your gut or however you hold space for your intuition is always right when it comes to the tarot. And really any of this magical stuff. But the high priestess is the keeper of that space. She gives permission for things to exist simply because they should exist. And that's one of the reasons why I love Jane Austen as the High Priestess. I love Jane Austen. If you want to hear me and Patrick and Karen go on a crazy rant about Pride and Prejudice, there's a good episode of Fabulous Fool's Terror where we dive into that. Um, and Patrick has never read or seen Pride and Prejudice, so it's kind of his first viewing and it's kind of fun to hear his opinions of, of the classic novel. But Jane Austen has created all of these characters which take up all 77 other cards and all these stories with purpose that deserve to take up space they certainly seem to take up a lot of space in our current culture we're still remaking Jane Austen movies we're still retelling these stories it's it's beloved storytelling but Jane Austen as the High Priestess allows those stories to take up space. She's more a ruler over them than the Emperor or the Empress ever could be. And then the other one of my favorite High Priestess depictions is the Mona Lisa. She is so mysterious, which that's the other aspect of the High Priestess. She's very still and very quiet, and she's got a lot going on around her, but she herself is kind of an unknown, just like the Mona Lisa. There's this beautiful old song that's been covered a lot, and this is kind of when I understood the mystery of the Mona Lisa. Um, Nat King Cole, I think, has the original version, and the song's called Mona Lisa, but the lyrics talk about why she might be smiling. Many dreams have been brought to your doorstep. They just lie there. And they die there. Are you warm? Are you real? Mona Lisa. Or just a cold and lonely, lovely work of art. I'm sorry, I couldn't just say the lyrics. <laughs> it's such a beautiful song. But she's different for everybody. She holds space for everybody. It's really, really lovely, and I would really encourage you to listen to the song, because that, again, that's really how I understood why everybody's so enamored with the Mona Lisa. But those are my three favorite tarot cards. There's so many more for so many more reasons, and I'm sure we'll get into it in many other episodes. <laughs> okay, so now we're to the point of the episode where I want to do a collective reading, and 
a birthday spread is enormous and also it might not be your birthday when you're listening to this so that doesn't sound practical but what I did think of was just something really original I would pick a card based on the three favorites that I just talked about so one card representing the page of pentacles which is calm and steady demeanor one for the eight of pentacles which is creativity a practical creativity even and then the high priestess which would be your intuition holding up space for your own intuition so i'm gonna pull cards from the shadowscapes deck and let me pull them <laughs> i'm shuffling while i'm talking so if you're hearing the that's what that is okay Oh gosh, the first card is the Hermit. Go figure. That's so funny. Okay, so the first card represents the Page of Pentacles, which is that calm steadiness. The Hermit in the Shadowscapes deck is, uh, he's carrying a lantern. The Hermit is kind of a scholar. And a scholar that is locked away a lot, studying a lot, just like you would think a hermit would be but you know you think of the wise old hermit because they just spend all their time alone learning things this hermit has climbed this very precarious looking series of rocks and is gazing out into the stars so in terms of calm steadiness even though all this air is swirling around that's some of that logic and wisdom though I think that's really about you know doing the thing that's kind of scary like the Page of Pentacles has to slay the dragon, doing something that kind of scares you in order to gain that knowledge that you seek. And it's a journey that you kind of have to go on alone, which, again, scary, but the people that really understand will understand why you need to do it alone. And maybe it's something even you would keep to yourself. Journaling is going to be really good for gaining that wisdom. So that way you can have your own notes, but also you have a way to express it without really sharing it with other people. Because I think that's one aspect of the hermit that maybe isn't talked about a lot is that the hermit's very private and these spiritual gains, this, this wisdom that we gain in these spiritual journeys, sometimes they need to be private because they become more sacred. And then the next card representing the eight of pentacles, which is that creativity, practical creativity, and really paying attention to detail. We have the page of cups and this page of cups is really lovely. She is a mermaid and she's got a bowl in front of her with some beautiful aromatics coming out of it. And there are fish flying around her, but she's sitting on the ocean floor and where she's sitting there's a lot of purple coral and purple which is my favorite color <laughs> but purple is the color that represents intuition that's what i point to it the most of course there's blue in there representing emotions and she's a gold mermaid so she's kind of carrying her own prosperity with her this this definitely feels like the watery version of the hermit almost but the page is earthy, so she's grounded, she's centering herself. So this is great for representing the Eight of Pentacles. So there's already that grounding practicality. But she's taking this moment, you know that moment when you have a cup of tea or coffee and you just kind of sit with it for a moment and let the warmth kind of surround you and the smell get in your nostrils. 
that's its own wonderful form of magic, but it's about taking kind of a quiet moment. And I think this is more about how you figure out how to be practically creative as opposed to actually doing the creative thing. Going within is really a good way to figure out what you want to do. I think that when I can only imagine I'm not um, an artist that you know does painting or drawing or anything like that but I imagine that when you do that you want to kind of think about where you're going and water of course is intuitive it represents emotions and intuition so you kind of just let your intuition guide you in terms of how what your medium of creativity is so just really take a beat to go within to figure out how what that's going to be for you I think that is a result of the Hermit's Journey, too, in the previous card. And then, the last card, which is your intuition itself. The Five of Pentacles. Well, this isn't such great news, unfortunately. The Five of Pentacles is kind of a card of sorrow. Um, usually, it's kind of a, a, a winter time of especially for finances. So kind of like finances are down or, you know, your material security is not feeling so great. Like you don't feel secure in your physical space. What's happening in this card, there's a woman who is crying. She's got her hands over her face. There's a butterfly coming towards her. Most of the card depicts some vines kind of creeping up on her, a beautiful stained glass, and there will be pictures on the Instagram. I forgot to mention that before. But she is upset, you know. In this case, her intuition, since we're talking about the high priestess, is bringing some sorrow. That's going to happen. I like to call it spiritual growing pains. Probably can't say I coined that. It's not very original, but spiritual growing pains can really suck. Honestly, they're not fun sometimes because you have realizations about, you know, things that you need to let go. The person that you were before may have to fade away. Some dreams you may have to give up on. <laughs> Just like the Mona Lisa. Wow. Full circle. I love it when that happens. But this five of pentacles, there's a lot of hope in it. The woman is not the majority of, of the card. There's, there's a lot of hope here. There's the beautiful stained glass, the butterfly, which represents transformation coming toward her. But as far as your intuition, it's important that you still allow the suffering to happen. It, it's important that you let your feelings be felt. You cry the cleansing tears because if you don't let your feelings out when you're feeling like you're going through growing pains, you're going to carry that pain with you and that's not going to allow you to grow as a person. It's kind of like the caterpillar becoming the butterfly. That's a very painful process. All we see is the the caterpillar and then the um, the chrysalis and then the butterfly, but it's really crazy for <laughs> the caterpillar. So just allow yourself to kind of live in that moment. Just allow yourself to go through that a little bit because it's super important and you'll be okay at the other side of it. Just keep going through the dark tunnel because there's a light at the end of it. And that's a spread. And thank you so much for listening 
to this episode. It's a little bit later than I wanted to because I got a little drunk on my birthday as I should be allowed. Um, I'm so thankful to be 30 and for my community and for all of you listening. This is a very exciting time in my life. So couple of announcements. Um, I did get my Arrest the Cops that Murder Brianna Taylor t-shirt. Um, you could see that on my Instagram. And you can still buy it too for a free three-card tarot reading. There's also the promo for Bunchy's Homebrew, which is aiming to become Florida's first black-owned brewery. If you donate to Bunchy's, I will give you a tarot reading. Basically, it's $5 a card is what I charge for an emailed reading, and your donation is equivalent to that. So if you donate 15 bucks, you get a three-card reading. Um, so just DM me that information. Um, if you're local to Tampa, I have a couple of markets coming up in October. I'm going to be at the Cactus Moonbeam Harvest Market the first weekend in October, the third and the fourth. And then the Market on Florida is kicking back up. I'm not going to be at the first Market on Florida, uh, which is at the end of this month in September, but I should be at the one at the end of October and I'll have dates ready for you. Next week, I will have my special guest. I'm so excited to have my first guest on. And thank you again for listening. You guys have a magical day. Thanks for listening to Mystical Millennial. Podcast art by Asgard Merman. Music by Russell Beard. Mixologist and editor, Patrick Nusinskis. And I'm your hostess. Tarot reader, glamour witch, mystical millennial, V. Kusinskis. Find pictures of today's episode and book a reading on Instagram at mysticalmillennial.